Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning again to those joining us online. We've been in a series, as has been mentioned this morning, uh, called Knowing Why. And getting back into the very things that God has called us to be as followers of Jesus and what we do in community, whether it be baptism, communion, how we pray, and moving beyond just the what we do and how we do it, and looking into the why behind the very things that God has given us. And this weekend, we're looking at the why of community. Why the coming together in relationship? You know, we may have this intuitive sense that relationships and being in community are important, but we need to embrace the truth about the source of community that gives meaning to doing life together with others. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4? That's our text here for this morning. Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 6. The scripture is going to be coming up on the screen. You can actually take your devices back out. Wade and Kara are done now. And if you want to uh, be on your device and looking at the scriptures that way, I encourage you to do so. But just let me set up where we're headed first. The first three chapters of Ephesians, and we're looking at context of this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to this, this church in this ancient city of Ephesus. The first three chapters was all about establishing a foundation of truth. The Apostle Paul has been laying out for them the reasons for the gospel and where their hope is found and what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus. You could summarize really the first three chapters of Ephesians as the stuff you have to know. The stuff that just you've got to get into your head and understand as a follower of Jesus. But as chapter 3 ends, we begin to see the Apostle Paul link what is known then into an experience. He's saying you can have all this cognitive ascent about the gospel and about Jesus and about the church. But unless that starts to play itself out into the very decisions you make and how you work and play and worship and relate, then all it does is remain head knowledge. And so he says, we need to get beyond just what we know now into an experience of that gospel in everyday life, a daily life that this knowledge motivates about Jesus and the living out of the gospel. We're going to be starting in chapter four as Paul's making this switch in the letter. This weekend, I want to take you on a journey through our text in a different way than I usually do. Instead of giving you an outline with points, that's usually my pattern. I say, here's what we're going to talk about. I want for the first whole first part of this message to capture the beauty and the mystery of a word that I'm going to call oneness. The beauty and mystery of oneness. To begin to see this priceless treasure that Paul is wanting his readers to embrace. Now, to begin, oneness is not conformity. As the scriptures speak of oneness in community, it's not about conformity. Oneness is about unity that is rooted in our identity in Christ. It's about being with one another despite difficulties or challenges or anything else. Is that we're for one another. And so we're going to look at oneness in relationship to God. Moving beyond just what we do in community and then how we do community together. We'll get there in a moment. But getting right back now to the why of community. And to start with the why of community, we have to look at the person of God himself. And how that unity affects all that we are and all that we do in community together. Because that's what I believe the first few verses of Ephesians 4 are all about. So let's take a look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. It'll also be coming up on the screen. And so here now, church, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Here's what Paul writes. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's what we're going to focus on. 
through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Did you notice uh, one recurring word that tend to come up a little bit in the text there? Right? More than a few times the word is one. Paul here is absolutely struck by the oneness that the Christian faith can bring. Now why is it that that, that word one is such a remarkable word when it applies to God? What is Paul getting at when he talks about the oneness that is God? Well, when it applies to God, it's remarkable because of a doctrine called the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is foundational to understanding this text and to understanding God. And that is this, that God is three persons, the Holy Spirit, one spirit, the Son, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, and the Father. There are three persons and yet one. Now, there have been struggles for a long time about the Trinity and how to understand this God who is one and yet three. And so if you're new to Christianity or you're on the outside looking in and wondering about the claims of Jesus and your head's already starting to explode a little bit on the whole idea of the Trinity, just bear with us. Because the truth revealed in in the scriptures is this. Although the word Trinity is never found in scripture, we see through the testimony of God's word that God reveals himself as a Trinitarian God. He's one God in three persons. Now, at this point, at this point, if you're trying to think of something to simplify the doctrine of the Trinity, just don't waste your time. Trust me, I've tried. Because God is not like an egg, and God is not like the three stages of water, or any of those things. All of these examples leave us short of the reality of one God in three persons, and usually lands us in some heresy that we've long ago moved away from. When talking about the doctrine of the Trinity... We are people that walk by faith on the testimony of God's word and embrace mystery as a beautiful and integral part of Christianity. I mean, if God could be reduced down to an illustration that we can hold in our hands, is that a God worth worshiping? I don't think so. And so even now as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, instead of having it give us headaches because we can't put God in kind of this linear way and kind of in a box and define him, Maybe this this morning can act as an inspiration of worship to the God that can't be fully explained and it reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now I'd like to ask you to think for a moment about what life must be like within the Trinity and what's called the Godhead. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. I mean, what must life be like between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and maybe ways that's different than life for us? I mean, how do they experience each other? Do you think there's a lot of arguments within the Trinity? Like over who's the most omniscient, or who's the most omnipresent, or who's the oldest, or anything else like that, who's the most wise? Not at all. We don't see that in God at all. But contrast that with, you know, us. Contrast that, let's say, when Jesus came to earth. What was the most common argument among his disciples as they walked with Jesus? They were constantly arguing, who's the greatest among them? God in the flesh is walking with them and you have these stories of like two disciples walking up to Jesus and saying, don't let the other 10 hear this, Jesus, Uh, but we're your favorites, right? Because like we're the greatest. Can we be on your right and your left? And Jesus, he kind of sighs out loud. The scriptures say sometimes is you're not getting this at all. Now that phrase, who's the greatest? Thinking of it this, this week has come to be associated with a famous athlete 
of the last generation. You remember a boxer who always said, I'm the greatest. Does anyone know who that is? Muhammad Ali. You do know him. Now, there's a story about Muhammad Ali that he was getting on an airplane one time. And the flight attendant told him that, Muhammad, you have to buckle your seatbelt, or probably Mr. Ali, you need to buckle your seatbelt or the plane can't take off. And he said, I don't want to buckle my seatbelt today, and I don't have to. I'm the greatest. And she said, you have to do it or we're not going to leave. And Ali said, I don't have to do it. I'm Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. I don't have to do anything. I don't want to. And I'm not going to wear a seatbelt. And she said, you are going to wear a seatbelt or this plane is not taking off. And Ali said, I'm not going to do it because Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked back at him and said, well, sir, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) We can all be humbled at various times in our lives. Uh, You know, it's a revealing thing that when Jesus, the son lived among human beings, the most common argument among his followers was who's the greatest. So with that in mind, I want us to think about what the scripture teaches us about life within the Trinity and how that then affects, how that influences the kind of community that we're called to be as the body of Christ. And I want to start with the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. There's something very striking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says something incredible about the ministry of the Spirit. He says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. That's what Jesus says. The Spirit's going to come and remind you about everything I've said. When the Counselor comes, that's another name for the Holy Spirit, He will bear witness to me. When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, the Spirit glorifies me. The Holy Spirit, when He comes to earth, think about this, does not clamor to have attention focused on Himself. His constant ministry is to get people to focus on Jesus. It's as if the Spirit goes out of sight and says, Hey everybody, look at Jesus. Pay attention to Him. Notice Him. Listen to Him. Be preoccupied with Him. Love Him. Serve Him. Follow Him. You see, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, amazingly enough, does not draw attention to Himself. The Spirit's great desire is that human beings be fully preoccupied with Jesus. But it's amazing, you look at Jesus then, and oddly enough, Jesus didn't go around saying, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. I mean, he says in John chapter 8, that if I glorify myself, my glory doesn't mean anything. He says he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus submits to the Spirit, the Spirit that led him into the wilderness. And he submits to the Father. I mean, think of one of Jesus' greatest prayers. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. And then there's the Father. We see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we hear the voice of the Father once at the baptism of Jesus and once at His transfiguration. And both times the Father says, This is my priceless Son. I am so delighted with Him. I am so proud of Him. I am so pleased with Him. Listen to Him, the Father said. Amazing. Theologian F.D. Bruner writes, It's worth noticing that the Father's voice from heaven does not say, Well, listen to me too. You know, after listening to the son, don't forget that I'm here. Don't be taken up too much with my son. And then Bruner says this. At each member of the Trinity points faithfully and selflessly to the other in one gracious circle. If you want to think about the Trinity, think of God like this. The son exalts the father. 
intercedes to the Father, and the Father's delight is to glorify the Son. The Spirit comes to point not to Himself, but to the Son. And the Son submits to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Father then sends the Spirit and is delighted in the Spirit, and the Spirit enacts the will of the Father. Remember all that? Maybe this will help. The whole Trinity is a circle of unbroken, mutual submission, mutual servanthood, mutual love, and mutual delight. Father, Son, and Spirit experiencing perfect oneness through all eternity. That's the God we worship. And the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity is this amazing truth that God exists in perfect community from all eternity. You know, He's not alone. God's not lonely, kind of just being shut in within himself. God experiences perfect community within himself throughout all of eternity, without beginning and with no end. God is three and yet one. And because community is such a beautiful thing to God, it's who God is. God is community. God is oneness. That God then created human beings in his own image, and in creating human beings, male and female, in his image, He created us with the capacity to experience the same kind of oneness that is experienced with Father, Son, and Spirit. We were made to know the kind of oneness that God exists in. And we desperately need this kind of oneness. But it's been lost to us. It's been lost to us because of sin. This was lost to us. This whole idea of oneness and perfect community was lost when sin entered the human race through Adam and Eve. And as sin entered the human race through Adam and Eve, there was this moment in the account of Genesis where they had to leave Eden and they're put outside the garden to the east of Eden. And you understand that when the Bible says that they were placed outside of Eden, this wasn't just about a move of geographical location. This was about a loss of community. This was about the loss of oneness with God and with one another. And as you trace the story in Genesis of the movement of people away from Eden, you'll see for the first 12 chapters after the fall, that everybody keeps moving east. They keep moving east, further and further from Eden. And the Bible is trying to get across this message. That this is not just a change of housing locations across the world. This movement east through Genesis signifies moving further and further and further away from God's idea of community and oneness. And it happens constantly through the scriptures. Friends, this is why loneliness is so painful. This is why... Isolation is so devastating. The reason loneliness hurts so bad is because it tears at the fabric of what you were originally created for. And yet on the other hand, it's why it is so powerful to the human heart when we get glimpses of oneness here on earth. The oneness you see between a parent and a child in a great family. The oneness of true friendship. I even think of the oneness of a symphony that plays with seemingly perfect unity. And it becomes more than just music and it lifts the heart and you say, they are together and I'm involved. But if you're like me, you'll know that capturing these glimpses of oneness, it creates a longing in us. And the longing, this longing for oneness, it's in your heart and it's in mine. We were created for this. This longing will never be fully satisfied by any marriage or any family or any friend or any team. It will not be fully satisfied until one day when we are part of the fellowship that God himself enjoys eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. Long for that. Now I want you to notice notice this. This is a prayer 
that Jesus himself prays in John 17 is this extraordinary study in Jesus' passion about oneness. And I want you to notice this verse. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and then he says, My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples gathered. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So who would that be? Who is he praying for now? That's us, right? That's you and me. That all of them may be what? What does it say? Maybe one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And so what Jesus says in the text is that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. The intense intimacy of the Trinity becomes the picture of oneness that Jesus wants for us. That all of them might be one, Father, just as you're in me and I'm in you. Now listen to the next phrase. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now that right there is a staggering statement. Jesus says, may you and I, us right here, be just like the Son and the Father and the Spirit are one. May we have that oneness. And then he says, may they be in us. In other words, the unity, the community, the fellowship that you and I are to know is the fellowship, the same fellowship that's experienced within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect, unbroken, unmarred, unblemished oneness. Now, what do you suppose it would take for Jesus' prayer for oneness in John 17 to become a reality now? I mean, what does it cost the Father and the Son and the Spirit to say, let us now bring fallen human beings into our fellowship? What's the cost of that? I mean, if sin broke oneness, if sin was an assault against community, what does it cost to restore that? Well, the Son says, in order for human beings to be part of the fellowship for which they were created, which is the fellowship of God Himself, the Son says, I will leave heaven and come to earth. And what does that mean? It's the Son saying, I'm going to step out of the infinite and into the finite. And I'm going to become like human beings. And I'm going to take on their brokenness. I'm going to take on their sin. I'm going to take on their aloneness in a profound and comprehensive way. And that's what we see at the cross. We see Jesus absorbing everything that stood as an obstacle to authentic community. The Son, who had never experienced the sting of guilt or shame, became sin for us. And then the Spirit says... As Jesus is giving himself on the cross, I will be poured out on the earth, the Spirit says, in mostly silent and invisible ways. And I will offer to lead, and I will offer to guide, never exalting myself, always pointing to the Son. And to think that now, to a large extent, the Spirit's promptings will be and have been ignored and even denied. And the Spirit will be quenched, the Scriptures say. The Spirit will be defied. It says the Spirit will be grieved, the New Testament says. You know, the Spirit was never grieved by the Father or the Son, ever. But now the Spirit knows grief. Father, Son, and Spirit says we will take onto ourselves the pain of brokenness, the, the brokenness of community, broken oneness, so that anyone, anybody who wants to enter our fellowship can, because of grace, will pay the cost. And now you and I have been invited into this fellowship of love it's through the gracious ministry of God at enormous cost to every member of the Trinity. I mean, are you seeing this? Are you tracking with me? 
I mean, this is the foundation of truth on which Paul is speaking in Ephesians 4. And he's wanting to show the church in Ephesus and the Spirit is showing us today how magnificent and precious this oneness is that we have been invited into. Can you feel that? You feel how precious this is? I mean, this precious gift of oneness and community is a gift of indescribably amazing grace. Which means... To tolerate disunity in the body of Christ. To do things that could lead to the disunity that the Son gave His life for is utterly unthinkable. To allow or contribute to disunity in the fellowship is to be fundamentally at odds with the purposes of God in the world and in human history. You know, disunity in the church is one of the biggest obstacles to the advance of God's kingdom in the world. You know, whether in a church locally here or anywhere around the world, inevitably you come up against this as one of the biggest obstacles, interpersonal conflict between followers of Jesus who can't get along with each other. And I want to say as strongly as I know how on this Sunday morning that I believe there are so many people that drastically and tragically ignore God's passion for the unity of his people. I want you to notice again what it is that Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3. It says, you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And you notice he doesn't say create unity in the church because this is not a human project. The whole idea of oneness has been going on for a long, long time before human beings ever came on the scene. And Paul doesn't say create unity. He says you maintain it because it's God's. It's God's oneness that we're after. It's not ours to begin with. But he does say now, make every effort. Now that's a really rare verb that's used here in the New Testament of, we could say, of intense urgency. One New, New Testament scholar says the nuances of what Paul is saying is this. When he says, you make every effort, it's like yours is the initiative now about oneness, church. We have got to do this, he says. The word is like, you do it now, you pay any price, you spare no pain, you are to do this. He says, I, Paul really, really mean this with the verb he uses. He says, in light of the beauty of community and the staggering cost that the Trinity paid to invite us into it, he's saying, don't take it lightly. Don't let it be damaged. And don't do anything yourself that would damage it because this is God's great passion. This is Jesus' great prayer. Oneness in the church is the signature of God himself. You know, I was thinking this week, thinking about church history. I'm kind of a history nerd. I read, you know, history texts and it's weird to some people. That's just what I love to do for fun. But I was thinking this week as I was reflecting on some things in church history. I was thinking of all the non-essential things that we have allowed to challenge the unity of the church that is supposed to be a reflection of the oneness of God on earth. I mean, there have been serious divisions and infighting over the style of clothing that we wear the kinds of buildings we meet in. What translation of the Bible to use? I mean, forget the fact we shouldn't even be, we have to be grateful we even hold a Bible, but then we'll fight over which translation to use. Or what's the right style of preaching? Or what kind of music should everybody sing? Now, I'm not saying we can't disagree about things. Please don't hear that. We can have passionate disagreements 
And we need to be grappling with the issues, even here at this church, and having spirited dialogue. That is absolutely allowed and welcomed. I mean, if you don't think it's part of the church, just read Acts, and you'll get a whole uh, history lesson in dialogue in the church. But hear this. It is simply, literally, unspeakably tragic that we can sometimes take the good, transparent conversations we're supposed to have and have them deteriorate to the point that we end up sacrificing oneness because of a sense of pride or a need to be right or a need to get our way. I mean, we could name so many things that have been weaponized in some way that ultimately becomes an assault against oneness. I gotta say, I, I just don't understand why someone like me or any of us, why we who follow Jesus Christ so often allow slander or rumors or gossip or unresolved conflict or bitter words or power struggles or an unforgiving spirit or a judgmental heart to just kind of go unchecked? What about deliberately excluding people? Deliberately avoiding somebody that you just don't want to have that conversation with? Or even going further and deliberately trying to hurt someone or embarrass them? Deliberately spreading bad information about a fellow brother or sister in Christ? And it goes on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, allowing what God prizes most to be trampled on and sometimes treated as worthless. And we just can't let that happen. Not here. Not in this church. We just can't let it happen. There's just too much at stake and the costs are too high. So in the moments that remain, I want us to just to get so concrete about how we go about making every effort. The why of community, the why is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're created in His image to be a reflection of the oneness of God to the world. So how is it that we make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit? That is, you know, maintain, honor, guard, cherish, protect, not create. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's just dig in for a moment and take a look at how we go about doing that. And this comes right out of the text, just... Three things to consider that we're going to be assessing. And I think sometimes words, these words are familiar with us, so we can just kind of skip right over them. Ephesians 4 says, We be completely humble and gentle, or gracious it could be translated. Being patient, bearing with one another in love. Now I'm going to ask us for the next few moments to be pretty teachable in our posture. All week, as I prepared this message, I kind of did this self-assessment with me and spent a lot of time with my head and my hands on the desk, repenting of things, confessing things, getting right with God on some things. And now, because I had to suffer through it, I want you to suffer with me. We co-suffer together in our walk with Jesus. Uh, so we're going to do a little self-assessment here. And I ask you just to approach this with an open heart and see what God is saying. How is it that we maintain, keep, protect, cherish the unity of the spirit that God is so passionate about. Well, it starts with the first word, humility, being humble. Here's some questions I asked myself this week. Answer them in your own heart. You don't have to answer out loud. How are you doing when you don't get your way? Because, what, because the unity of the spirit, that which is most precious to God, rests on a thousand little moments when people will decide whether or not to be humble whether they will live as servants or whether we won't. So how do you handle it when you're not getting your way? What goes on in your heart? What kind of stuff comes out of your mouth when you're not getting your way? You know, someone very wise once said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So what happens when you don't get your way? What's in the heart that kind of explodes out sometimes? We're not getting our way. How do you handle it when you're in a group and maybe someone says something funny? Are you able to enjoy what they've said or do you just need to try to say something a little bit funnier? Or how are you when somebody's spiritual gift is being highlighted and praised? Can you name it and encourage it or do you need the spotlight back on you? In a moment of disagreement or misunderstanding, do you believe the best about people? Or does it become an opportunity to try and expose how stupid or short-sighted that other person really is? Because you'd never make a mistake like that. How are we with listening? Do we really hear people? It's one of the most humble things we can do. You know, keep it zipped and listen, to, listen with our ears. When you're in an argument with somebody, how intense is your need to be right? Paul says we make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit by being completely humble. There's no superiority in this. And there's no taking easy offense in order to put ourselves in a superior position. So how are we doing with being humble in maintaining the unity of the Spirit here in this body? The next one is he says, now be gentle, or could be translated to be gracious. And the opposite of this would be to have a judgmental spirit or even contempt for somebody else. So let me ask you, do you have any un- issues of unresolved conflict or bitter feelings towards anybody within the body of Christ? Is there a lack of gentleness or grace in the way that you're relating to somebody right now? Because I'll tell you something, people not dealing directly with the person they're having the problem with and then talking to someone else. I mean, it's the default mode of the human race and it kills, kills unity. You know, so many of us either don't engage directly with the person we're having a problem with because we're afraid of the reaction or we go around with a spirit of self-righteousness and a judgmental attitude that comes out in our words and actions towards people. You know, it hurts when someone turns a cold shoulder to try to send a message of offense. Avoidance is a killer. So in either path, either the avoidance of fear or a kind of self-righteous judgmental blasting, it's just destroying unity. It's an assault against the oneness of God being reflected in the church. So I'm going to ask you to do this. You ask Jesus to bring someone to mind. Is there anybody within the body that you have unresolved conflict, unresolved feelings, bitterness, or a bad problem with? Have you been taking it to a third party or a fourth party or fifth party? If you have, it has to stop now. And it needs to be resolved. And the scripture says that happens now. We choose gentleness now. We choose grace now. We speak truth and grace to everybody in this body. And then Paul says, you be patient bearing with one another in love. And every human being is someone who needs to be bared with in one way or another. I need to be bared. We need to bear with me sometimes. And so do you. But we're called further than just needing to tolerate one another. Our bearing up, our forbearance is done as an act of divine love. And there's going to be so many times when you may be in a conversation or something is going on and somebody wants to be part of community and you have the decision to make, do I turn toward that person and embrace them or do I turn away and exclude them? 
And God, Father, Son, and Spirit has said he will pay any price to invite everybody into his community. So how about it for us? Do we really embrace the people that are around us? Do we let them know that they're welcome and they want to be part of this community? That we desire people to be part of community? As God desired oneness with you, do we desire oneness with others? Are we taking time to look people in the eye and let somebody know that you're glad they're part of your life? Are we speaking affirming words over people? Do you offer forgiveness quickly when it's needed? You know, Paul is dead serious about the fact that we're to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And he is so serious when he says we be completely humble, gentle, and completely patient. The oneness, the unity of God's people is something that is unspeakably prized by God. And the scripture says, now this church, we make every effort, we pay any price, we spare no cost to maintain, to keep what matters most to God. And you know what needs to start today? You know, maybe there's somebody who's next to you or near to you who's lonely or discouraged or afraid or worried and just needs someone to humbly listen for a moment or to put an arm around their shoulder and encourage them or take a second to pray. You can do that today, absolutely. But as I was praying this week, I think the challenge I want to give you for this week is would you take time with me to soak in the reality of our God who exists in perfect community and let's just worship him? for how he's revealed himself to us, to have our hearts, souls, minds, and bodies reoriented around the beauty, wonder, and mystery of Father, Son, and Spirit. And not try to explain him down, but worship the mystery that is our God as he's revealed himself to us. And then out of the place of worship of our triune God, be moved rightly into oneness with one another. That our prayer would kind of sound like, God, as it is with you, so let it be with us. As there is oneness with Father, Son, and Spirit, let that oneness be ours. So I'll tell you, if you begin to worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as He's revealed Himself to us, it immediately does one thing. It leads us to points of repentance where I can see in my own heart where I'm not living the oneness of God relationally with people around me. And so maybe this is a week, this is a season as individuals and as a church, we get serious about repenting and turning from the stuff that is the assault against oneness. And we start to get it right in so many ways relationally. Why? Because Father, Son, and Spirit has invited us into His perfect fellowship and we cannot, cannot be assaulting the oneness of God in our treatment of one another. And my prayer has been that we would be a fellowship of grace and mercy, humility, gentleness, and patient forbearance and love as the greatest testimony to our world of what the goodness of God looks like here in this time and in this place. I'm going to invite our worship team up. There's a specific hymn that we're going to sing together that becomes the declaration of the church about what we've talked about today. But before we do that, in how we're going to do this this week as a challenge to say, God, we are simply going to posture ourselves in worship of you, our triune God. We're going to give our hearts and minds and souls and bodies to the greater embrace of what it means that you are our one God existing in three persons and have that be the motive for right relationship, for the why of community around us. To help in this, I'm inviting you to pray a prayer with me throughout this week. You can bring that up on the screen. Um, I'm committing and I want to ask you if you're willing to commit with me 
to every morning and maybe through the day. Maybe it's a three times a day prayer in the morning, midday, and at night. This prayer. Let me pray it for you. We're going to pray it together. And it's simply a, it's a Trinitarian prayer. It's a triune prayer. It says, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. And then you pause there and consider what that would mean. And Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. If you want to take a picture of that, you want to write that down, we're going to leave it up there for just a moment. Would you do that with me this week over the next seven days? Maybe start the day or even three times a day. Simply recite this prayer and have it as an act of worship of what it means to pray into the beauty and majesty of our one God existing as three and how his life influences our life in community with one another. Would you stand, please? We're going to sing in just a moment. But before we do, I want to give us a moment of quiet to consider what the Spirit is saying. And then we're going to give voice to what God is speaking to us this day. Would you stand quietly with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, God Almighty, may the oneness that is you be the oneness of our body. We repent of the things that are the assault against oneness and choose even now as we sing one song, be knitting our hearts together in perfect unity for the cause of your gospel in the world. Bless you, Jesus. Let's remain standing and sing together. I just want to send you with these words, but before you go, know that the front is open always for prayer, for prayer ministry. Uh, It's also a place of repentance and confession. It's a place to receive grace and mercy. Not that this space is any more holy than any other place, but it is a place where you can receive prayer and simply speak the words of God that are on your heart. And have them spoken back to you as a blessing. So if you want prayer, if there's something you want to talk about, we're here uh, to bless you and minister God's grace to you. But now go in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blessing of Father, Son, and Spirit who works all things together for his good and for his glory. For the oneness of God and the oneness of his church. Would you walk in his grace. Have a great week. God bless you.